For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. Yeah, so we've been working our way through the book of John. We've been in the upper room discourse talking about the concentrated teaching that Jesus gave to his disciples, knowing that he was about to go to his death. And really where we're at is it it behooves us to pan back and look at the big picture for a minute. That, you know, what was Jesus's mission? Why, Why did he come Why did he leave perfect harmony and community with his Father in heaven and come and dwell among us and have to undergo all the indignities of being human and all the tragedies of being exposed to the will of other humans? Jesus lays this out at the beginning of his ministry. You can find this in Luke 4.18. He's getting ready to start his mission and he walks into the synagogue and he quotes Isaiah. He says in Luke 4, 18 through 19, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim the release to cap the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. He says this passage Today has been fulfilled in your hearing, and he sits down, and it's like, boom. This is who I am, and this is what I'm here to do. I'm here to save the human race, to rescue them from darkness, and to reconcile them with God. His life, the way that he lived it, as you study through any one of the four Gospels, you see this. A good summary of that would be Matthew 20, 28. Jesus said, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What did God do when he came to dwell among us? Did he build a giant castle with a throne and let people come and catch a glimpse of him? Or did he get down and dirty into the human experience and serve and help and come alongside and love and heal and teach and live for others? Because that's who God is. He created others. And then he lives to serve, to engage, to love, to connect, and to lift up those who are down. And then we get to Jesus' death, which was an integral part of his mission. It's something that he went into with eyes wide open. There was no sense of surprise as Jesus and his followers were heading into Jerusalem, as they were spending the time in uh, in the upper room during the Last Supper. It's not like Jesus went out from there to the Garden of Gethsemane, was betrayed by Jesus and handed over and was like, whoa, this wasn't part of the plan. And he told them this over and over again. Look at Luke 18, 31 to 33. This is as they're headed into Jerusalem. He says, it took the 12 and he said to them, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem and all things which are written through the prophets about the son of man will be accomplished. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles, will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. And after they have scourged him, they will kill him. And the third day he will rise again. That's a pretty excellent summary of what was going to happen. Detailed understanding of everything that he would endure as a part of his mission. So Jesus' death 
is a part of the plan from the very beginning, and he understands this. He knows what he's in for. And the death isn't just a consequence of his mission. It's not like, okay, you're going to go and you're going to love them and you're going to set the record straight and you're going to explain that it's not through uh, outward rule adherence and religion that people come to know God. It's through faith. It's through understanding that we are separated from God and that we want and can be connected to him through faith. And they're going to be real upset and do some bad things to you, and that's unfortunate, but, you know, stick to the mission, Jesus. No. The mission was to do all of those things, but then to go to the cross and die so that he could take the sins, the punishment, the wrath of God for all of us, for all people, for all time upon himself so that our debt would be paid and he would be made right with God. The death is a central part of the mission. And he knows this. So we get to where we left off two weeks ago in John 19, and we're just going to read John's account. It's real short compared to some of the others. And we'll start in John 19, 6, or not, John 19, 18. It says, they took him to Golgotha, the place of the skull, and there they crucified him with two other men, one on either side, and Jesus uh, in between. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. Now, this was common. Crucifixion was a diabolical invention to kill people in the most uh, public humiliating and deterring way possible. This was ancient man reasoning with their understanding of human biology and saying, okay, what can we do to kill people in such a way that people will look at that and say, what did they do? Because I'm not going to do that. And they would line the roads with crucified victims, but in order for it to be totally effective, one, it has to be gruesome, it has to be long, it has to be painful, but you have to know what they do. So they're their crime would be posted on the cross. You would be like, not going to murder, not going to betray Caesar, not going to kill anybody. Like, you would understand these are the consequences. So Jesus's plaque says he's the king of the Jews. And you can imagine, as it says in 20, therefore many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and in Greek. No matter what language you speak, you can know. And the chief priests of the Jews were saying, Pilate, don't write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. You can understand why they would want that distinction. This isn't the king of the Jews we're crucifying here. This is a blasphemer who claimed to be the Messiah. And Pilate says, what I have written, I have written. So the soldiers came and they crucified Jesus. They took his outer garments. They made four parts a part for every soldier, and also the tunic. Now, the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to decide whose it shall be. And this was to fulfill scripture. They divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore, the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Now, one thing I want to point out here is there's, you should be aware that when you're reading Scripture and you see a font change, right? He says this was to fulfill Scripture, and then there's a weird font change in most Bibles. This is to indicate to the reader that they're actually quoting the Old Testament. We'll come back to that later. 
Verse 26, so when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. From that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. And after this, Jesus, knowing that all things had been accomplished to fulfill the scripture, he said, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it to his mouth. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. That's all John gives us. But there's a lot there. There's a lot going on there. If you study the four gospel accounts, you find that there are essentially what we would have been called the seven cries from the cross, seven declarations that Jesus makes while he's actually nailed to the cross. And it's interesting to go through and study those things. So in the four gospel, there's seven of these statements, and each of them tell you something important regarding who God is. And this makes logical sense. You know, God never suffered like he did on the cross. This is something that in eternity past, all the way back, and from this point forward, all the way forward, God would never be in the position again where he was in a human body and enduring all the physical pain that was being lashed upon him. And then the great, much greater spiritual torment of separation, of darkness, and judgment. This is a pinnacle event in eternity that all eternity past looks forward to and all eternity future looks back to. This is something that happened once that God did. He never suffered like this before. He would never suffer like this again. And what are we doing when we're studying a gospel? We're trying to understand God's character. And what better opportunity, what aspects of character come out more than when you're in the midst of suffering? We learn a lot about ourselves when we suffer. We learn a lot about our relationships with other people when they suffer. And it makes sense that we would learn a lot about God when he suffers too. So what he says from the cross is an opportunity to even get a more pungent concentrated view of exactly who is the God of the Bible. John only covers three of the, of the seven cries from the cross. I want to cover the three in John because that's the book that we're doing. And I want to look at two others as well in uh, Luke and Matthew where they, they add some other things that Jesus said that I think are very important. All seven are very important. But we'll look at the three from John and two of the others. The first one is the first one here in John where he says, woman, behold your son, and he says, son, behold your mother. That's not considered two cries. That's considered one. What's the deal with this? Why is this important? Well, we've got to put ourselves into the historical situation. Remember, Jesus has been falsely accused and imprisoned, interrogated by multiple authorities, beaten, mocked, shamed, stripped naked, and crucified. Now, put yourself in Mary's shoes, his mother. His mother, who has been there from the very beginning, And Jesus, as he hangs there, naked, bloody, beaten, 
People are hurling insults. He's looking out at the audience, and he sees, and he makes eye contact with mom. And she's standing next to one of his best friends, one of his disciples. And his thoughts turn to her and her needs. Who's going to take care of Mary? God, in his moment of ultimate, incredible suffering, is still looking to the needs of others. That's something we learn about him. Now, culturally speaking, Jesus had brothers. He was the oldest, right? But he had younger brothers, and it would have been their job, if the oldest brother died, to take care of mom. And so the fact that they're not apparently present and they're not up for the job of taking care of mom tells us something about the dynamics of Jesus' family a little bit. We read in John 7, 5, for not even his brothers were believing in him. At that point, early in his ministry, they weren't believing in him. And what we know is that they didn't come to believe that he was the Messiah until after his resurrection. So at this point, you can put yourself in their shoes. Their big brother thinks he's God the Messiah, and mom agrees. That would be a hard sell if you have any siblings. That would be a very difficult, it wouldn't matter how nice your brother is. The fact that he is saying, I am born of a virgin. An angel came to mom and said, I'm going to impregnate you by the Holy Spirit and you are going to bear the savior of the world. To grow up in that environment, I think would have been very challenging. Just saying. And it appears as though this reality has created a good deal of estrangement in the family. They should be the ones who take care of mom. They're not even there. We look at Psalm 69, which is also considered a messianic psalm because it has many points that connect with Jesus' ministry and prophetically connect with the time on the cross. And we read that in 69, 7 through 9, he says, Because for your sake I have borne reproach, dishonor has covered my face. I have become estranged from my brothers and an alien to my mother's sons. Because zeal for your house has consumed me. And the reproach of those who uh, reproach have fallen on me. So we get an, an, an even clearer view here that Jesus' zeal for God, zeal for the mission, belief in what he has come to do has divided his family to the point where the brothers aren't even around and willing to take care of mom. And so as Jesus hangs from the cross, knowing that his earthly ministry is coming to a close, he looks out in the crowd, there's mom, there's the disciple John, the author of our book, and he says, mom, John's going to take care of you. John, take care of mom. And that tells us something, even then, about who God is. Mary, too. Mary had been with him all the way, obviously. And, you know, I know the Catholic Church, and a lot of people misunderstand and misinterpret, and they make Mary the co-redemptrix with Christ, and none of that is in Scripture. But let me tell you what is in Scripture. A very young, probably 14-year-old girl had a visit from a spiritual being who said, Behold, you are chosen of God to carry the Messiah, and you are going to be pregnant by the Holy Spirit. And she said, 
let it be done to me as God, as God wishes. And she had a front row seat then for the life of God. You know, you want to know, look at Jesus and see the character of God. Changes diapers. Be there through the terrible twos, right? Connect and see she had this incredible opportunity. Why? Because she told God yes. To have a relationship with God that would be unique in all eternity. I'm not saying it's, it's more important, but it is unique. 10 billion years from now, when we're all hanging out in heaven, Mary will be the one that I'm like, remember when you were a baby? <laughs> And none of us will be like, wow, I can't even imagine holding the Messiah in your arms, rocking him to sleep, having that kind of connection. But the price that she paid was seeing her son go to the cross and die for the sins of mankind. If you're a parent, you've got to connect a little bit, at least with the idea of your child let alone your God, which would be confusing, but let's just stick with it for a minute, is up there suffering, and he looks at you and says, Mom, you're going to be okay. You're going to be all right. She was faithful to the mission, to the leading, and to the calling of God. She never wavered in her role, and God loves and provides for those who love him. Even in the worst moments, in the pinnacle of the greatest hardship of his experience, he looks out for those who love him. Now flip it and think about John. John was known as sort of the inner, inner circle of the 12. You know, he was the disciple whom Jesus loved. This is like the sense of like, they are super close. They are really good friends. And now John's been following him for years. He's seen him raise people from the dead. He's seen the blind sea. He's heard his teachings. He's experienced all of this stuff about who Jesus is. He's dedicated his whole life to following and continue on the teachings of Jesus Christ. And here he is, naked and bloody on a cross, looking down at you and being entrusted with an intimate, personal task, one that his brother should be doing. And he looks at him and says, John, take care of mom. And what a blessing it would be. What an incredible, you know, any one of us knowing Jesus or just knowing a friend who were in that situation, what's the thing that you're thinking above all other things? I wish that I could do something. I, the Roman army is here. I, I'm one person. I can't. Stop this. Oh, if only I could do something for you, Jesus. And Jesus says, I need you to do something for me. I need you to take care of my mom. And sometimes the greatest way that we can serve others is by making our needs known and asking them for help. And the all-powerful God of the universe does that too. Isn't that interesting? He, I mean, think about it. Jesus could be resurrected, and then he could just be like, well, Mary, for the rest of your day, there's going to be manna on the ground. You know, trees will grow over you. Like, it's not like God needs to worry about food, clothing, and shelter for Mary if God doesn't want to worry about those things. He can cover it. But he decides to include somebody he's in a relationship with in that work. And that is so 
God, as you get to know him, he loves to work through people. He can accomplish his will however he wants, but he loves to do it in the context of a relationship with people who love him and whom he loves. The feeling of John's utter helplessness to be given something tangible, meaningful. I mean, imagine Jesus looks at you and says, will you take care of my mom? And you're like, oh yeah, absolutely. God, thank you. Thank you for letting me do something. The second cry from the cross is also from John. It's from, we read it from 1928. He says, I thirst. And you're like, deep. (laughs) He's out in the middle of the sun. He's impaled, sweating, bleeding. Obviously, he would be thirsty. And so on the surface, this seems like maybe this is like the least important thing. This is also, I think, a great demonstration of how God provides through the power of his word. For one thing, it reminds us of the reality of his physical suffering, right? This is not just, you know, a drama. This is something that he is really experiencing, and he is having the physiological reactions that anyone else would have. The pain, the thirst, the aching, all of it was not muted. It wasn't like God's like, I'm going to do this, but I'm going to turn pain off. He is experiencing the reality of what a human being in this position would experience. We're going to read a lot of Spurgeon tonight, basically because he's awesome and can can say things succinctly so much better than I can. Here's what Spurgeon says on this particular cry from the cross. He says, is it not clear proof that he was certainly a man? Certain heretics sprang up in the early church who asserted that the body of our Lord was only a phantom, that God was here, but as a man, he only exhibited himself to the, in the outward sense. It didn't actually exist in flesh and blood, but he thirsts. Now a spirit hath not thirst. A spirit neither eats nor drinks. It is immaterial and knoweth not the, what it, what, uh, the wants that belong to his poor flesh and blood. We may therefore rest quite sure that the word was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten father, full of grace and truth. Isn't that an interesting point? That in that moment, it drives home the reality of the physicality. God took on a body and took on all the ownership that comes with having a body that can be destroyed. Why is it important? You know, sometimes you get into these um, teachings of Jesus on the cross and pastors and preachers, they do an awesome job of going through all the medical components of what it is, you know, crucifixion and what it does to your body. And we pull out the Journal of American Medicine and the article that's been written on that. That is great stuff. It is really good and helpful stuff for understanding the reality of what Jesus went through. But I think one of the things that we tend to do as an audience in that situation is we're like, we're cringing and we're like, oh, why? Like, and what we come away with sometimes is this. We come away with God suffered so much, I owe him. But that's not what God is trying to communicate with that, I suffered so much. God's not a God of guilt or God of shame. Guilt is not a sufficient motivator. And God's about getting us moving, 
getting us out there to love others. And so when we look at this stuff, when we look and, and think about what was going on with Jesus' body on the cross, I want you to think about the fact that he suffered, but I don't want you to think about it in terms of, well, he suffered for me, so now I should suffer for him. That's not really, I think, motivating in the way that God works. What is motivating is by understanding why God and how God suffered so much, it connects us with his determination to save us. It was that important to him that he went through this because you are that important to him. Not that you owe him something. But it reveals something about his nature, about his character. This was not theater where, you know, Jesus was going through the motions, and not, but not actually experiencing these things. The physicality of what happened on the cross was real. God went to hell for us. Because he loves us. Because he is that magnificent. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And we think, oh yeah, you gave your only son and therefore I should feel bad and I should listen to you. That is the enemy's perversion of a powerful truth that we must lay hold of here tonight. He gave his only son because he believes we are worth the sacrifice. He values you and me and everyone else that's ever been born or will be born that much. He's that committed to us. It tells us a lot more about him than it does about us, doesn't it? The, the way that he sees us, because I think this is attacked so often because the enemies of God have to erode this idea that God loves us, that God values us, that he cares about us, because they want to turn him into the grumpy old man who's, you know, he'll die for you, but then you owe him. And that's the picture that the enemies of God want to paint, but the God that we see on the cross in Jesus Christ is the God who willingly gets up there in the hope that we would choose to receive him because it's worth it. It tells us how precious we are to him. And we, we should not gloss over that point because it's often misunderstood and misinterpreted. The last thing here is notice in our passage, it says that knowing all things had been already accomplished to fulfill the scripture, Jesus said, I am thirsty. So again, our author is cueing us in that there is something prophetic, something in the Old Testament that had to do with Jesus being thirsty. And we go back again to Psalm 69, which is the same Psalm that talked about the estrangement from his brothers. And we read in Psalm 69, 20 and 21, reproach has broken my heart and I am so sick and I looked for sympathy, but there was none and for comforters, but I found none. They also gave me gall for my food and, my th and in my thirst, they give me vinegar to drink. And there's this sense of there were these Psalms and there was all these passages in the Old Testament, many of which get into 
lurid detail on this moment, the moment of Calvary, the moment where Jesus is on the cross is one of the most prophesied and detailed moments in all of Scripture from multiple passages, multiple places, multiple eras in Israel's history, and multiple prophets. And they're telling us this is a psalm that is a prophecy about Jesus. Let's look at the third one. The third one we're going to pull from Luke. Luke 23, 34, and this one, they're all important, but this one, in terms of revealing the character of God, it's really powerful. We read that Jesus was on the cross, and he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing, and then they cast lots, dividing up his garments for themselves. And what's important about this is to understand that as Jesus is going through this suffering, he is still connected with the Father. And Jesus' response to suffering is, to move toward the Father, prayer. And we often struggle with that. We, we tend to suffer, and we get more and more huddled in and kind of bunkered down. I'm suffering, leave me alone. I'm suffering, I'm angry at God that I'm suffering. I'm suffering, and I don't want to talk to anybody. That's sort of our natural, fallen, human way of responding to suffering. But God responds to suffering by circling the wagons, by drawing closer And there's something that Jesus demonstrates here. But it's also interesting, he doesn't pray for himself. His prayer from the cross, his conversation with the Father from the cross is regarding the men who were murdering him. As they drive the spikes into his hands and arms, he prays for their forgiveness. If that doesn't tell you something about who God is, I don't know what will. Let's look again at Spurgeon. He says, the petition is altogether for others. And though there is an allusion to the cruelties which they are exercising upon himself, yet it is remote. And you'll observe, he does not say, I forgive them. That is taken for granted. He seems to lose sight of the fact that they were doing any wrong to himself. And it is the wrong which they were doing to the father that is on his mind. The insult which they are paying to the Father and the person of the Son. He thinks not of himself at all. The cry, Father, forgive them, is altogether unselfish. Mind-boggling. And he's so right. Hate Spurgeon for being so right. (laughs) Think about this. He doesn't say, guys, I forgive you. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Their intent here is not in the realm, they are not in the realm of understanding the full picture of what it is that they are accomplishing. Now put yourself in the shoes of a Roman soldier. I bet you've heard a lot of stuff from people before you drive the spikes in. Never have they prayed for you and your forgiveness. I bet there was somebody that had a really rough night that night thinking about what happened. This guy. We're nailing him to the cross, and he's praying to God because they would have had a guilty conscience. You can't do things like this and know that you're doing something terrible. God's built that into us. They know what they're doing is wrong. They're just, but they're going to follow orders and do something terrible. And the person they're doing it to in the worst possible way is praying that God would not hold their guilt against them because that's who he is. That's what he's like. 
God moves towards us even while we curse him. That's why, you know, we see the character of God in his most intense moment of suffering right here. Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we're yet sinners, Christ died. One of the biggest fallacies that people believe about the God of the Bible is they got to get their act together and then come to God. And God's like, no, you cannot get your act together. Stop trying. And come to me as you are. Come to me where you are in this moment right now. Turn to me in your heart and say, I need you. I need you in my life, God. I need Jesus' death to apply to me. Do that right now. And that is the beginning of a relationship. You're like, but I got a lot of things that I'm doing right now. And whether I pray right now or not, I plan on going home and doing some more tonight. That's not the point. The point is that God moves towards you even while you rebel, even while you shake your fist, even while you curse and flip him the bird, and even while you drive spikes into his arms. He moves towards you because that is who he is. God's unconditional commitment to our ultimate good is what we see on the cross. Again, the enemies of God paint him in this way where he sits back and he's like, you better not do that or we're going to have a problem and you better not do this and you better straighten up and fly right or I'm not going to talk to you. And that's the exact opposite. God comes running out, arms open. What you're doing is terrible for you. Can I show you something else? Let me show you who I am. Let me show you why you were made. Let me show you what will fill you up. I'm like, no thanks. I got this other stuff. It's incredible. The cross is where all the universe, see, because God had never died on the cross before, people knew, the angels surely knew, the greatness of God, the glory of God, all eternity past, the power of God, the love of God, the mercy of God. These things were understood, but not at this level. Because never had he died for someone that deserved judgment, let alone everyone that deserved judgment. Do you see the importance of this? This was the moment where, you know, if you're an angel that existed before, you know, the creation of the earth and you're hanging out with God and you're learning about him and you're like, you're wonderful, you're magnificent, right? And then sin enters the world and you're like, oh man, he's going to have to destroy that, but he loves them. He created them in his image. That's going to be really sad for him. And he says, hold on a second, I'll be right back. And he goes down there and takes the wrath upon himself No one in eternity knew he was that amazing until that moment. Because there was never an opportunity for that depth of personality, of character to be revealed, but it is revealed and it's magnificent. It's the highest form of love, of compassion, of justice and mercy all coming together, all the characteristics of God coming together in one moment to reveal 
how amazing he is and how much he cares about us. Then we get to the fourth cry. This is in Matthew 27:45. It's a very famous, most people have heard of this. It says, Jesus is on the cross, and on the sixth hour, darkness fell upon the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which translates, John says, as, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this is getting real. You know, I don't know about you, but the first time I was reading my Bible and I got to this point, I was like, ah, mmm, doubt, doubt. There it is. And it's so fascinating that they included it. Why would you include that if you want to argue that he was faithful to the end and he was God and he always knew what was going on and he was in control? Doubt is right there. God, why have you forsaken me? I've had that same thought. And I'm pretty sure it was sin. And so Jesus, hanging from the cross, cries out in a loud voice, God, why have you forsaken me? And we're thinking, is Jesus losing his faith? Was he surprised by this? I thought he had everything mapped out and planned out, and he knew exactly what was coming and when it was coming. Is Jesus believing that he's been, been betrayed by God? What other alternative explanation is there other than Jesus is like, whoa, I didn't know it was going to be like this. And it's interesting because on one level, there had to be a level of amazement and grief. He had never been through anything like this before. It was a new experience. And that experience is the withdrawal, the separation. If, if the Father and the Son have been united and connected in perfect harmony for all eternity past, and now the Father moves away as Jesus becomes sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It says that Jesus became the embodiment of sin and God cannot have fellowship with evil. He is the light and the light has no fellowship with the darkness. And Jesus is experiencing something again for the first time and the last time in all eternity history, disconnection from the Father. And he cries out, where did you go? You've left me. Again, Spurgeon says, persecuted and forsaken believer, behold your brother in adversity. God. Behold the one who has gone whenever, wherever you may have to go, who has suffered more than you can ever suffer, and who has taken his part and the direst calamity that ever happened to human nature, so that he had to cry out in the agony of his soul, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But dear brothers and sisters, you have not got the whole truth yet. For no saint knows the presence of God as Christ knew it. No saint to the fullest enjoyed the love of God as Christ enjoyed it. And consequently, if he does lose it, he only seems to lose the moonlight. <coughs> Whereas Christ lost the sunlight 
when for a time the face of his father was withdrawn from him. Only think what must have been the anguish of the Savior, especially as contrasted with his former enjoyment. Never did any mere human being know so much and enjoy so much of the love of God as Christ had done. The love of Christ toward his Father was boundless. Well then, for a frown to be upon his Father's face or for the light of the Father's face to be taken away from him must have made it correspondingly dark and terrible to him. That's well put. Understanding the the theological dynamics of what's happening here, of what Jesus is experiencing, is very important. But it's not the only reason that Jesus says this. If you look at it again, when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The font changes. And we know that he's quoting the Old Testament. And we go to Psalm 22, and the opening of Psalm 22 is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Psalm 22 is by and large one of the most important messianic predictive psalms in all of scripture, predictive prophecies in all of scripture. I'm gonna hit the highlights of it here because of time, I can't get into all the detail of it, but I want you to see what's happening here. In verses 6 through 8, he says, I am a worm and I am not a man, a reproach of men despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head saying, commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. 9 and 10, yet you are he who, who brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust when upon my mother's breast. Upon you I was cast from birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. 15 through 18, my strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws, and you lay me in the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all of my bones. They look and they stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. 22 through 24, I will tell of your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him, all you descendants of Jacob. Glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried out to him for help, he heard. Imagine knowing Psalm 22, standing among the crowd, sneering, yelling, crucify, why don't you save yourself? And he says, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why are you forsaken me? And you're like, I've heard that before. Psalm 22. I'm thirsty, I'm dehydrated, I'm stretched out. They've pierced my hands and my feet. They're casting lots for my clothing. And you're looking around. And there are the Roman soldiers casting lots. And here's Jesus saying, I'm thirsty. And there are his pierced hands and feet. And you realize this was the plan from the beginning. This is all, God is still in control. Down to the smallest detail. 
what is this Psalm 22? It's a Psalm of David. David wrote this. David lived around 1,000 B.C., okay? Crucifixion would not be invented for another 300 years after David was dead and gone. It wouldn't reach the pinnacle of what it did for almost 700 years. The specifics of what's being described here in David's life did not exist in David's time and would not exist for a long time before. And it's a stunning first-person detail of being crucified. This whole thing where I'm poured out I'm dehydrated. I'm stretched out. My bones are out of joint. I can feel all of my bones. You know, the whole idea behind crucifixion, as they nailed your arms and your feet, was they stretched you out, and when you hung, you couldn't inhale because of the position you were in with your diaphragm. And you had to pull yourself up by your nails in order to take a breath, and then you would hang back down. And eventually what kills you, typically in crucifixion, is you suffocate to death because you lack the strength and the will to pull yourself up to breathe any longer. And it could sometimes take days. And we're reading an incredible picture of what we know physiologically happened. And clearly David was never crucified. He died an old man in his bed. Crucifixion wouldn't be invented, invented for centuries. And even down to that detail, they cast lots for his clothing. What an interesting display of what? Of prophetic power? Of man's manipulation of the text? What is it? It's something. It's something. And we really have to wrestle, I think, with what it is. Because the way you answer that it's like a gear with a lot of tumblers that all of a sudden lock in and have a whole lot of meaning for us. Some people will say Psalm 22 was clearly written after Jesus' crucifixion, right? You know, we have copies of the Old Testament, but I mean, how far back do they really go? You could go back, you know, claim that this is a Psalm of David, write your whole thing, just do the whole crucifixion scene, and then call it predictive prophecy, and boom, all of a sudden, you got this amazing prophecy of Jesus. Clearly, that's what happened here. Except when we found the Dead Sea Scrolls, we found scroll 4Q87, dated to 100 to 25 BC, containing Psalm 22. We have copies that predate Christ, so they couldn't have gone back and changed the copies. It was there. It was there for hundreds or even a thousand years before Christ. You say, well, okay, so they just made up the events. They picked Psalm 22 for some weird random thing. And they made up all this stuff about, you know, the soldiers casting lots for Jesus' clothes. And they made it sound like that so it would seem prophetic. Well, there's a lot of problems with that because remember, again, crucifixion didn't exist when it's being described. Not only that, but remember that David clearly never went through what he's describing there. Not only that, remember that we have four different eyewitness accounts of the cross written 
within a few decades of when it actually happened, dispersed to a people who would have been there, who would have understood this, and who would have been familiar with the cultural concepts of crucifixion and soldiers dividing up clothing and all of those things because that's what they did for everybody. Yet it was written a thousand years earlier. Extraordinary prophecy surrounding the person of Christ. That's what I believe. I believe that God has taken this pinnacle event that is so important and he's laced history with important check marks so that we would have confidence that this was God involved in the human condition all the way back to the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve rebelled. God began putting little Easter eggs in history for us to follow so that we could have confidence that this was true. Jesus fulfilled over a hundred Old Testament prophecies. But the big ones, when he would be born, you can read about in Daniel 9. Where he would be born, Micah 5 2. The purpose of his mission, even the, the meaning behind it, was meticulously detailed. Let's look at Isaiah 53 real quick. This was known before Jesus' day as a messianic prophecy. Isaiah 53, 4, surely our griefs he himself bores and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Wow. Again, the detail. Written hundreds of years before Jesus would go to the cross. <coughs> Perfectly fitting. The scene the meaning, the purpose, and Jesus' own testimony about what this meant. And of course, the manner of his death, which we just read in Psalm 22. The last cry that we're going to look at tonight is back in John. So we're going to cover the three from John. He says, it is finished. John 19, 30, therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he says, it is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. That word in the Greek is tetelestai. Uh, it's an interesting word. It was a word that would be used to indicate that a debt had been paid. And that's, that's the undergirding theology behind our understanding what he's saying is this is the full wrath for all of us. God has no wrath left because all of it has been paid by Jesus Christ. And he says, paid in full and die. Again, we go to Spurgeon. The atonement and the propitiation were made once for all and forever by the one offering made in Jesus, in Jesus' body on the tree. There was the cup. Hell was in it. The Savior drank it. Not a sip and then a pause, not a drought and then a, a seizing, but he drained it till there was no dregs left for any of his people. 
the great ten-thronged whip of the law was born and worn out upon his back. This, there is no lash left with which to smite one for whom Jesus died. The great canon of God's justice has exhausted all of its ammunition. There is nothing left to be hurled against the child of God. Sheathed is your sword, O justice. Silenced is your thunder, O law. There remains nothing now of all the griefs and pains and agonies that chosen sinners should have suffered for their sins. For Christ has endured all for his own beloved, and it is finished. I want to have that tattooed on my back. (laughs) Wow. It is finished. Praise God. Praise God that he is that good. And Remember what the question was. How does God act in the midst of suffering? What do we learn about the character of God? What do we know about him because of this? He is thoroughly and utterly others focused. He is concerned with you, with your well-being, with your life, with your heart, with your purpose, and with your joy. He has unparalleled love and compassion and eagerness with intimacy and closeness with each and every one of us. I know some of you here don't believe that. You think that God is far off, but he is right here with you, beckoning you to come home, to be in a relationship with him We learn that he is sovereign and in control of the entire flow of human history. He is well aware of what has happened, where things are now, and where they are going, and he is involved. Because you can't prophesy like that without knowing and acting and moving in human history. And that means he's aware of your struggle and your pain and the injustices that have been done to you and the evil that you have perpetrated on others. He knows it all and is ready to receive us as redeemed children. That is the God of the cross. What do we learn about us? We are loved at the fundamental take and strip everything away. Who are you and who am I and what are we about? We want to be loved. And there's a reason for that. It's because we've been made to receive love. We've been made to be objects of God's love and to share that love with one another And God says, nothing could be more true. How much do I love you? I love you enough to do whatever it takes to sacrifice whatever needs to be sacrificed for the chance, for the hope that you could be saved. You are valued. You are loved. But you are also broken. We are not what we were meant to be. 
And the Bible shows us this so much better than anything else there is, that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, knit together by the hand of God in our mother's womb, image bearers of the all-powerful creator God of the universe, and dastardly, desperately broken, evil, selfish, and corrupt. How can we be both? And yet here it is, the truth of it, was we were made for all that glory, but we were given choice and we used it to rebel. That's why we argued, well, do you think man's basically good or basically bad? And that argument's been going on for thousands of years because both are actually true. Incredible potential, incredible, magnificent, noble beauty in man. Every single one of us and no limit to the depths of which we can wallow in our own crepulence. It's bound up in us. And when you look at the scope of human history and human culture and society, what do you see? Beauty, art, sacrifice, love, rape, murder, genocide, and oppression. All there together. What could be more accurate, more piercingly true to the human condition than God's explanation for us? I hope that you also have seen a little bit tonight that there are real reasons for believing. No one wants you to check your brain at the door. And if you have questions, then you need to seek answers to those questions. Because we have a choice to make. And it is the pinnacle choice of our human existence. Will we receive Jesus Christ as our Savior? Will we believe and embrace God's offer of eternal life? Or will we go home and do nothing? 2 Corinthians 6.2, Paul says, at the acceptable time, I listened to you, and on the day of salvation, I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Why not do it now? Why not? I hope you will either do it right now or you will know why not and articulate it to someone here tonight. Tell someone what is holding you back, no matter what it is, and have an honest conversation about that. That's, a, that's an evening worth happening, right? To have a legitimate conversation about why we might disagree and eat some smoked sausages while we do it. <laughs> Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. That is the offer. A rest from the strain of trying to be your own God, a rest from the guilt of knowing that you fall short, and the relief of knowing that you are valued and that you matter and that you can be reconciled because Jesus Christ went to the cross. Or if you're not ready for that, at the very least, launch a bold investigation. Get your questions answered. Hold nothing back. 
scrutinize what you have heard, what you read in Scripture, and what Christians said, and find answers. Reach out to God. I was challenged with this in 1993. No, sorry. I came to Christ in 1993. I was challenged with this in 1989. I was arguing with a really annoying Christian who wanted me to meet Jesus. And I was like, mm, no. I have other things I want to do. And they said, well, just turn to God and say, if you're there, would you show me that you're there? Because I wasn't an atheist. I didn't have a problem with the idea that God might exist. And it was a challenge. You know, it was like, well, if God is there, do you really want to know him? And if that's the case, then what's the harm in saying, God, show me who you are? But beware. He is real, and he does answer that prayer. Now, obviously, I'm grateful he did, and you will be too. But... It doesn't always turn out the way that you think. God doesn't always work the way that you think, and he doesn't always work in the timing that you think. But if that is your attitude, God, if you're there, I want to know you, and I mean it. I am supremely confident that you will find him because he wants to be found. The point is, don't sit on the fence. There you have John 19. God, thanks for these guys. Thank you, God. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for saving my life, for teaching me so much, and I know that I have so much further to go, and thank you for forgiving me for that too. Thank you for accepting us, even as you fully know who we are. And we pray, God, that we can be lights and beacons of hope into a dark world that is increasingly hostile and misunderstanding of who you are. And we ask that we can be like John, that we can do something to serve you, not from guilt or shame, but just because we've been blown away by the greatness of who you are. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.